electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. Thank you, Scott, and welcome to The Exchange, everyone. I'm Kelly Evans, and here's what's ahead. Underappreciated. That's what Goldman Sachs says about this market and the risk from coronavirus. Does today's sell-off mean they're right? We will ask. Plus, Morgan Stanley doubling down on wealth management, buying E-Trade in the biggest bank deal since the crisis. Why now and where does it leave? Goldman will explore that. And a piping hot stock, a walkout at Oracle, the shorts take aim and political ads all over Hulu. It's all ahead today, but we do begin with Bob Bassani with the latest on this market. Bob. Well, we had a very interesting 10-minute period, a little after 11 a.m. Eastern time, when we saw a roughly 300-point drop in the Dow Jones Industrial Average. Someone decided to lighten up. No immediate headlines around coronavirus or anything else, but somebody obviously decided to take a little money off of the table. I think you take a look at some of the big momentum names we've seen, and that's where you saw most of that early damage. So, for example, Virgin Galactic, the momentum stock of 2020, uh, dropped 42 to 31 in literally a few minutes. Tesla also had a big drop. Semiconductors, another big momentum sector drop. Microsoft, another big winner this year. It's been going sideways for the last week, running out of some steam, also down about 2%. Another factor, 10-year yields dropping. Don't normally bring up 10-year yields, but you saw new lows for the year there. That got people thinking about what the implications of that might be. And finally, it's strange when the markets are new highs, and yet there's all sorts of new highs in the safe haven plays. So gold we saw, seven-year high, dollar, three-year high, utilities at an historic high. I think, guys, something's got to give here. And today, at least, it was those momentum stocks that gave way. Back to you. Yeah, that's a big snapback uh, in Virgin Galactic. Bob, thanks. We appreciate it, Bob Bassani. Uh, But we begin today with a mega merger in the trading world. Morgan Stanley buying discount brokerage Pioneer E-Trade in a $13 billion deal. For Morgan, that means doubling down on wealth management. It's also the biggest takeover by a U.S. bank since the financial crisis. Morgan Stanley CEO James Gorman touted the benefits of this deal for his financial advisors earlier on Squawk on the Street. You have complex financial needs. You need a partner to help you with those needs. This will be additive to those financial advisors because we'll now be giving them online banking to provide to their clients. We'll be giving them online trading for the children or friends or family if they want to open another account. And we'll be giving them referrals out of the system. So it's clearly positive for financial advisors. Well, let's dive deeper into the deal now with Rich Rapetto. He's principal at Sandler O'Neill and Partners. And our own Dom Chu is here as well. Uh, welcome, guys. And Rich, what are your thoughts on the timing of this deal? All the, the trading platforms are down big since the Schwab announcement last fall that they'd go to zero commissions. So is this a, a smart move by Morgan Stanley to pick up an asset uh, in an opportunistic way? Well, I, I do think it's a good deal for Morgan Stanley and for E-Trade now. Because uh, it's a good strategic fit. Like uh, Mr. Gorman said, uh, the wealth advisors, they can get referrals. E-Trade has a big corporate stock plan business uh, that they can refer these customers to. Uh, and uh, also, uh, the uh, Morgan Stanley didn't have, they had bought Solium a few years back. So they're adding to this this corporate stock plan business as well. So a nice strategic fit. Uh it might have been done or, you know, 
earlier before the zero commissions, but it is a good uh, good deal between the two companies. Morgan Stanley shares are down about 4%. Uh, one of the critics of this is Mike Mayo, who downgraded the shares to equal weight this morning, and he said that there's a lot of um, operational risks, not necessarily the best strategic fit, that he prefers Goldman's kind of invest to build approach versus uh, splashing out $13 billion for Morgan Stanley. Uh, what do you make of the merits of that argument? And uh, is Morgan Stanley making a, a good case for itself if you consider that it's outperformed Goldman by 2x over the past five years and that Goldman now appears to be chasing the consumer business that Morgan Stanley's long now been in? Well, what, what they don't get if they try to build it organically is E-Trade has this corporate stock plan business, like I said. It's about over $300 billion in assets. So that gives Morgan Stanley uh, access to clients uh, where E-Trade's managing you know, whether it be a, a bunch of the S&P 500 uh, corporate stock plans. When they award stock to their employees, they have E-Trade accounts. So before when they'd cash out, they wouldn't be able to go to an E-Trade advisor. Uh, E-Trade was trying to build that. So Morgan Stanley gets that business. They've already worked at that business uh, or started inroads with Solium. The other thing that they get with E-Trade is E-Trade's built a lot of the digital capability, whether it's E-Trade whether it's banking, robo-advising. So it immediately, you know, catapults Morgan Stanley up uh, to the most modern uh, technology, mm -hmm. you know, backbone in the, in the retail brokerage industry. Dom, it's also the second big merger now uh, for these trading platforms because TD Ameritrade sure. and Schwab have this deal underway. Um, any antitrust concerns that you might foresee, or how do you think it changes the landscape in general for these trading platforms? For this particular deal, it doesn't seem like it's going to be a, a, a real problem with antitrust. I mean, with Schwab and TD, you could have made that case. But again, like Rich said, in a zero commission world, it's hard to argue that the consumer is being disadvantaged by this because they're not True. paying anything for right. commission trades in this form anyway. The, the interesting part about the Schwab side of things with TD was one of the big things that Schwab had going for it was it was able to take on deposits. It had a stable money base, a funding source. They had interest margins to make there. TD Ameritrade didn't have as much of that, but it was complementary. Here, Morgan Stanley gets that more stable deposit base from E-Trade taking on some of those deposits as well. And so it gets a more stable capital base there. What I think is interesting about this whole landscape is it's part of this, what I've been calling the retailization hmm. of financial services Absolutely. globally. globally. Can not we just, even call it Wall Street anymore? It's not even just about Wall Street. Yes, UBS <laughs> and ING. So, so just today, UBS says that Sergio Armadi is stepping down from the CEO role, a global Swiss banking giant with wealth management for high net worth and ultra high net worth. And who do they tap to run it? Not a wealth management person, a guy who's done retail banking and insurance at a Dutch lender wow. to come and do that sort of thing. Because why? He has experience with taking on deposits, also with the digital and financial technology side of the business. Remember, ING at one point had ING Direct even here in the United States. Sure. Yeah, so there's a lot of retailization. And it's remember, Goldman's got the Marcus Savings platform yes. now. And yes. so all of that's happening at the same time. And so, Rich, that's why I do wonder if um, traditional Wall Street's been shrinking, this business is growing what should Goldman's next move be? Do they look at one of the other platforms? You know, all those stocks obviously are trading up today, perhaps on the hope that uh, someone else might be the next acquisition target. Should they look at a startup like Robinhood? Do they kind of need that at all, or should they stick with uh, what they've been doing? Well, I, I think they are, the other assets are trading up, but to acquire something else right now uh, is going to be expensive for Goldman. So I, I think Goldman has probably made the biggest inroads digitally uh, of the big banks from a retail standpoint. So uh, if, if I were them, I would continue on. They've made good uh, progress with Marcus, uh, consumer lending. 
Uh, they're working on an institutional platform as well. So they've done, they've made pretty good progress so far. Where again, like Morgan Stanley, this will catapult them uh, and get them that capability pretty quick. Do you have any kind of price target in mind, Rich, for where Morgan should be trading now, or, or Goldman, or, or what are your thoughts, just real quickly before we go? I, I don't cover Morgan Stanley. Uh, uh, my partner Jeff Hart does, uh, but uh, he can he can address uh, the price target of Morgan Stanley. Yeah, well, I'm sure if, if you're liking it, uh, you know, the CEO is speaking quite positively about it. And uh, perhaps even the shares will come around still down about 4% today. Rich, we really appreciate your time. You're welcome. Rich Rapetto, Dom Chu, thank you as well, sir. Uh, there's still more ahead to come on the exchange. Stocks are sliding with the Dow down as many as 388 points earlier, falling for the fourth time in five days. This move comes as yields have been declining and the dollar continues to rally. The dollar index is now at its highest level in nearly three years. Joining me is Wasif Latif. He's head of investments at Victory Shares and Solutions. And CNBC's own Rick Santelli joins us as well. Uh, Rick, first to you, just get, said the landscape here. As Bob mentioned off the top of the show, things have looked a little uh, more grim over the past couple of hours. Is that triggered by these yeah. upward moves in the dollar, these drops in bonds? What are you seeing out there? Well, I'll tell you what. I think bonds interest rates, domestic and global, are all tied in in various channels. But I think today in particular, I'd like for viewers to look at three charts. Two-day chart of the Dow, the NASDAQ, and the S&P in any order. Because the minute we traded under yesterday's lows in all three of the major indices, you see what happened. Now, I'm not saying that it was technicals that were the catalyst. Maybe it was a global time story about uh, more corona case, coronavirus cases in China. I don't know what the trigger is, but it seemed to be that whatever the trigger was, it hit at just the time we were slicing under yesterday's lows. And if you're nervous, that is the first signal, especially considering that yesterday's indices, especially the NASDAQ, was layered completely above the previous day's session. So when it went down like that, I think that that was really the main catalyst of that 275-point kind of air pocket. Sure. Well, Steve, what are your thoughts? And as we mentioned, there's this idea out there that markets haven't been discounting coronavirus seriously enough because we're basically at all-time highs. So we've hit a little bit of an air pocket lately. But uh, should that pocket be larger? Yeah, Kelly, uh, yesterday the story was the markets are inoculated by the Fed and any kind of bad news is going to be met with a wave of liquidity that's going to help. But I think what we've learned today is that the coronavirus movie isn't over yet. There's more to come in this story. And the expansion of that virus, whether in Japan or now in Korea, is causing a lot of investors to, I think, think about that. And the concentration that we see in some of those mega cap stocks in these indices, I think, are the most vulnerable in this type of a situation. And having a much better balanced portfolio that can help you uh, immune yourself in your portfolio from that type of a drop right. is what we're doing in our portfolios. So I think the, the wake-up call for the market is today that this story isn't over yet and there's more to come from that front. But, Wasif, if what you're doing is basically sort of holding underweight the, the biggest names, the FANG, sort of Microsoft, the, the tech giants, that's a real risk of underperformance, right? I mean, this is where the action has been for years now. That's a really good point, Kelly. And, you know, last year was a great example where those stocks led the way and the market was up a lot. And, you know, for example, the S&P 500 was up with 33-odd percent because led by those stocks. And, you know, uh, a product like CFA that we invest in, that 
is going to reweight those stocks in a much more risk-balanced way. And so we're naturally going to be underweight those stocks. But what happened last year was, despite that strength that they had, that kind of a product was still up 30-plus percent. So to give up a little bit on the upside, mm. to have that inoculation and that protection when things like this occur, is a, is a trade-off that we're willing to take in our portfolios because of okay. the way um, that index is constructed and also where we think where the markets are given the valuations of what we're looking at, especially of those large-cap, mega-cap names. Yeah. Rick, finally, before we go, we started with the dollar. I just want to end there. What levels would you be watching? And we're at the at three-year highs already. What happens if we go even higher? What implications do you think that holds? Well, exactly. And I think that the world being nervous, as we've been discussing, is one of the reasons, as you look at a a chart of the dollar index, you can see how it's accelerated because as businesses, especially foreign and Chinese businesses, uh, start to fail due to coronavirus, they still need to procure various dollars to pay, whether it's interest payments or dividends or servicing any of their dollar-denominated debt. This is huge. Uh, and I think that if you start to take out some of these levels right around 100, and we've gotten close today, almost 99.92, that that will create a whole new dynamic of of buying that could set us up maybe as high as 102 or 103. I don't think the dollar index rally is over, and I think the more nervousness exists over coronaviruses and its impact on the global economy, the more you're going to see investors globally trying to find and procure dollars. All right. Well said. Thank you both. Rick Santelli with Cif Latif. We appreciate it today. And here's what else Thank is you. still ahead on The Exchange. Coming up, an inside look at DuPont's protective gear facility. What they're doing to try to help combat the coronavirus. Plus, political ads are flooding the streaming services, and it could spell trouble. And the shorts are circling one former IPO darling as it gets set to report. This is The Exchange on CNBC. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. Welcome back. The number of confirmed coronavirus cases now tops 75,000 worldwide and the number of deaths at more than 2,100. As the outbreak continues, companies like DuPont are burning the midnight oil to increase production of protective gear. Seema Modi is inside DuPont's facility in Richmond, Virginia with more. Seema? Kelly, that's right. In response to coronavirus, DuPont employees are working around the clock to increase production of their protective garment suits. Here in Richmond, this is DuPont's largest manufacturing facility. This is where the process starts. The polyethylene fabric is being rolled from here, sent to a warehouse, and then shipped to one of nine manufacturing facilities around the world. Now, as factories in China return to full capacity, DuPont says it's increasingly relying on its operations in Vietnam to meet the surge in demand it's seeing from China. We were able to, within one week, provide more than 30 times our traditional volume uh, that we supply into China, more than 30 times that uh, within one week. 
Kelly, there are a number of different protective garment suits, but DuPont says that this Tyvek suit that is being increasingly used in high-impact regions in China, specifically in Wuhan, it can cost anywhere between $5 and $15, and a much more higher uh, industrial hazmat suit can cost over $1,000. Back to you. Seema, it is loud as heck there. I can't imagine what it must sound like inside that factory. I, I assume they're basically running at full capacity around the clock. Yeah, that's what the company says, full capacity. They've dedicated uh, more employees towards this effort, about 1,800 here at this facility. That spans over 500 acres, but that doesn't count account for the employees that are in the nine manufacturing facilities around the world, specifically in Vietnam, where they're really working around the clock to get these suits to China and other countries where there are confirmed cases of the coronavirus. Yeah, I hope that can help it from spreading further. Seema, thanks very much. Seema Modi in Richmond, Virginia, at DuPont for us today. For more on the coronavirus, tune in to CNBC's special report, Outbreak Coronavirus. That'll be live tonight at 7 p.m. Eastern time. Coming up, shares of Domino's Pizza are extra topping investors' expectations today. A look at why they're up 25% and if this is sustainable. Plus, could political ads flooding streaming services become a major problem in the presidential election? One of my next guests says yes. He'll tell us why ahead. And a reminder, you can always watch or listen to us live on the go on the CNBC app. The exchange is back in two. People today can spend half their lives over 50. So it's good to be financially ready for what's important to you as you get older, like a family vacation. Or starting your dream business. Welcome to Connie's Coffee. How may I help you? AARP's trusted financial tools can help you plan for whatever your future holds. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Start planning today at aarp.org slash money tools. Canva presents stories to keep you up at night. It was an ordinary work day until... The Singapore presentation is at... <laughs> 3 a.m. The office was shocked. <laughs> That's when we sleep. Maya made it less scary with Canva. <laughs> I'll just record my presentation so Singapore can watch it anytime. Record and present anytime with Canva presentations at canva.com. Designed for work. the exchange. Let's take a look at these markets. We saw stocks deep in the red at session lows, uh, but we're off those levels now. We were down nearly 390 points earlier today. Right now, the Dow down about 185, the S&P off 21, and the Nasdaq still down about 1%. Here are some of the movers this hour. Shares of Stamps.com are up 60% on pace for one of their best days ever, you would think, up 60% after doubling earnings and upping their forecast. The results calming fears at the end of that deal with the U.S. Postal Service would severely impact business. How about Viacom CBS? Those shares are on pace for their worst day in over a decade, down 17 percent. The company reporting a loss as it completed its merger with CBS. Viacom announced it will soon offer three main streaming services to maximize revenue from online video. And shares of Norwegian Cruise Lines are down 4 percent despite an earnings beat. The company warning on full-year targets, yes, due to the coronavirus, calling the impact, quote, swift and severe. It's worth pointing out that Norwegian is one of the least exposed cruise liners to the Chinese market, but the CEO is blaming broad-based fears for increased cancellations. And just about 30 minutes until Power Lunch, I'm joined by Tyler Matheson with a little preview. You know, Kelly, I've got a concept for you. It's called mail. 
you, you write a letter, okay. you put it in an envelope, and then you put a stamp, stamp on, on it, it. <laughs> and somebody carries it to somebody's house uh, down the road. It's going to be big. And uh, what about this idea that uh, people might deliver milk to your door? Yeah, and, yeah, 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 that's right. So anyhow, at, uh, at 2 o'clock Eastern Time, we will be talking about the Sanders effect. Uh, he is leading uh, the Democratic field, whether you watched the debate last night or not. It was I a, did. It was a bit of a knife fight. Uh, and uh, Bernie Sanders, whatever you think of his policies, he has remained consistent. Today, we're going to look at his policies and how they would affect both the banking and financial industries and the real estate industries and housing. Uh, and to, to put it mildly, our guest believes that the effect, if he were able to win and then bring some of these policies to bear, would be negative on both of those segments. He wants to break up the big banks. He wants to reinstate Glass-Steagall. He wants to put uh, caps on interest rates, among other things. And his odds are going up, uh, predicted after last night. That's right. You see it. So we'll yeah, talk he's, to he's him. He's calling for federal rent control. That would uh, certainly affect housing. So Lots we shall see. to dig into. We'll see you then, Tyler. I'll Thanks so much. Now to Brian Sullivan for a CNBC News update. Hi, Brian. Hey, guys. Three Virginians, by the way. Here's what's happening at this hour. Roger Stone, one of President Trump's staunchest allies, has been sentenced to 40 months in prison. This after the Justice Department backed off its original sentencing recommendation of between seven and nine years. Stone was also fined $20,000. He declined to address the court. President Trump putting his ambassador to Germany in charge of 17 U.S. spy agencies. Richard Grinnell will become acting director of national intelligence, the move facing criticism by those who say the job should be held by somebody with deep experience in intelligence. Also happening today, Secretary of State Michael Pompeo meeting with U.S. military commanders at a Saudi airbase where some 2,500 U.S. troops are stationed. Pompeo says the American military presence is a form of deterrence to get the diplomatic outcome the president is seeking. Finally, a little good news. The University of Southern California will phase in free tuition for students with an annual family income of $80,000 or less. Ownership of a home will not be counted in determining a student's financial need. Changes will be phased in beginning with the first year students in the fall of 2020. So there you go. I think, Kelly, it's the most expensive or one of the most expensive colleges in the United States. Tyler paid like six cents when he went to UVA back in the <laughs> 70s. I think I paid three grand a semester at Virginia Tech in the 90s. Yeah, well, I, I, as it regards USC, it's also free tuition. You know, you get caught up in some of the college bribery scandals. I think USC played a pretty prominent role, Brian, in some of those, too. Wasn't free. No. Not for the parents. Yes. In many ways. Many parents won't be free. That's, They'll be in jail. Yeah, exactly yep. right. Brian, thank you. We appreciate it. Brian Sullivan. Here's what else is coming up today on The Exchange. Ahead, L Brands says goodbye to Victoria's Secret. Oracle employees are getting ready for a walkout. Is Apple getting ready to open up its closed system? And get ready for more political ads, this time on your streaming service. It's all coming up on The Exchange. Let's catch you up on a few stories that should be on your radar today. It's rapid fire. And here to break down the headlines are Robert Frank, Kate Rogers, and John Fort. John Fort, this is a, the house. It's been a while. Yeah, it's been a while. Like a round Thanks of applause. Yeah, hey, very exciting. Uh, but we're going to talk some retail first. Lauren Hirsch ought to get over here and take a victory lap, lady. L Brands is selling its Victoria's Secret franchise to Sycamore Partners in a deal she told us about. Come on down. Uh, valuing the retailer at $1.1 billion. Shares of L Brands are now higher on the day uh, after they opened lower. You broke the story last week. We talked about it a little bit. What, mm -hmm. Any interesting sort of takeaways from the completed deal now? Yeah, the really interesting thing, I think, both to me and to investors was that it wasn't a full acquisition. It was a majority stake. And I think a lot of people were 
expecting a full acquisition, which is probably why we saw the shares fall. I spoke to advisors on it. I got some inside source. It sounds like there was a lot of concern that shares of L Brands have fallen so much over the past few years that to sell the whole company now, it's, a, it's kind of a tough pill to swallow. So the pitch to investors is have faith that Sycamore can turn things around in Victoria's Secret, and you can kind of ride it on the upside. Because we were going to say, should we call it L Brand if it's down to just right. Bath and Body Works? But yeah. I guess it does retain some exposure to Victoria's Secret, maybe mm-hmm. on the upside? Exactly. That's the goal. What do you yeah. guys think? But that also speaks to how cheap it was. I mean, I think even when your article broke, which was mm-hmm. great, I think everyone was thinking, including analysts, about a much higher valuation yeah. than $1.1 billion dollars. Mm-hmm. Think about Lululemon, which has half the sales and is valued at $34 billion. Wow. And, and it's just, I just think people didn't think it was going to go that cheaply. And that just shows how far it's fallen. Mm-hmm. It does. But I will say, I've spoken to a number of private equity sponsors about the deal. It is kind of within the realm of other sponsor interests. So I think maybe analysts were overestimating its value. But can it be turned around, right? I mean, like, it's really fallen behind the times. Its advertising doesn't seem to resonate with young women anymore. Mm-hmm. And some of the brands that Sycamore has bought up also haven't really done that well. So what's the plan here? And is it able to come to fruition? I think will be really interesting for people to watch. It's a great question. I don't know that, frankly, anyone has Mm -hmm. the answer. And I haven't gotten the answer yet. What I can tell you is, and I mentioned this last time, Sycamore is known for kind of getting down and dirty. That's their their shtick. And Victoria's Secret, L Brands, Les Wexner has long had majority stake. The board has long been very insular. And so many people believe it hasn't been run efficiently. So whether or not they can turn it around, Mm -hmm. that's one question. But their ability to cut costs, make it more efficient, there's probably a room to go Are they going to get rid of him? He's stepping down, yeah, as CEO. And he's staying on the board, um, but he's stepping down as CEO and chairman. They should bring back swimwear. That's the only That's one the, thing I ever got they from Victoria's the fashion show. To me, that was like the biggest cultural, we don't want this anymore when the fashion show right. was, a, was a no-go anymore. Yeah. But an acknowledgement of how much things have changed. And, and how non-inclusive to. it's become. Yeah. Right, yeah. right. That's yeah. why uh, my favorite research note a couple weeks ago was uh, the firm that called Nike the new Victoria's Secret, mm-hmm. basically mm-hmm. saying... That's where the sexy is today. You know, yeah. it's inclusive. They had different. this show with like 100 different body types mm-hmm. and people in it. And we all know athleisure is. I mean, you can't even actually work out in athleisure these days. Let's be serious. I, I, it's I can't sequined. Fit it yeah. right. <laughs> it's, to be honest, yeah. Sequins, pearls, right. rubber, right. everything. It's crazy. <laughs> Lauren, thank you. Lauren <laughs> Hirsch. We appreciate yeah. it. Next up, look at shares of Domino's today, which are soaring to an all-time high after their profit and same-store sales in the U.S. beat expectations. The stock is up about 25% right now on pace for its best day ever. Um, so my question, Kate, is what does this tell us? Because they are the original delivery model. Their own employees. They are not using third-party, you know, that's delivery right. companies. Uh, is this a, a, a sort of a saying to them, yeah, that's, that's working for you pretty well? This is such an important quarter. They haven't beat on U.S. same store sales in more than a year. As you said, they don't partner up with aggregators. So while we've all been wondering who's going to be the last man left standing between DoorDash and Postmates and Uber Eats, Domino's has kind of kept its head down, stuck with the plan. Uh, the stock had taken a hit over the last year. But I mean, look at this. It's up, you know, with these huge gains today, I think investors are really confident in the plan. They talked a lot about fortressing, which is their strategy of opening up more stores closer together, shorten your delivery times. They said that's been really profitable for drivers and franchisees. He also talked about aggregators on the call, said there's a circular firing squad going on right now between all of these aggregators. Uh, we may catch a few stray bullets. We don't know what consumer behaviors will be like in 2020, but they maintained their guidance. And I think that that was really important. For what, how, John, if you're Uber Eats, how does this make you feel? 
Uh, if you're Uber Eats, if you're Postmates, if you're DoorDash. I mean, I think Domino's is kind of a unique play, though, because it's, it's pizza. It's delivered pizza. How much can they expand outside that? We'll see. I mean, there's wings. There's other things that people get. But Domino's is in this unique position of sort of being the apple of food delivery, right? They're vertically integrated. They can uh, iterate quickly with new product and as you mentioned, command their employees in a certain way. But I'm not sure they're going to be able to have the full Apple effect. Mm. Apple charges a premium. It's a premium product. Pizza's pizza. I doubt we're going to see a $100. Pizza is not just pizza, okay, John Ford? But are we going to see a $100 pizza, right, yeah. that everybody's going to Here's eat the Apple of pizzas? Here's where I knew Domino was going to be huge. So I live in Manhattan, which has really good pizza, right? My daughter loves Domino's Pizza. Of all the Thank pizza you, you can get in Manhattan, that on air. so this is all we get now is Domino's, Domino's Thin Crust, which is, by the way, more Delicious. expensive than most pizza you can get in Manhattan, mm-hmm. and she loves it. That's all she wants. So uh, if I could buy stocks, I would buy the stock. They were way ahead of the curve, too, and they're in telling you when the pizza was going to come. GPS yeah. technology, absolutely. People love it. And robots on the way. They talked about this test that they have with the Neuro Robot, which we interviewed Rich Allison about over the summer. They're getting closer to regulatory approval for that. He's going to see the test himself in Houston soon, so don't forget about that And when we talk about technology and all the things that Domino's has. And proving this can work in the post-Patrick Doyle area, which has also Absolutely. been a, a big question. Big to fill. Be sure to tune in uh, to Mad Money tonight for, at 6 p.m. Eastern for Jim Cramer's exclusive interview with Rich Allison, the CEO of Domino's. They will have much, much more about that. Uh, topic three, any minute now, Oracle employees are planning to walk off the job. At least some of them who are upset that the company's founder and chief executive, Larry Ellison, held a fundraiser for President Trump. John, not... It, it's sort of a, a classic Silicon Valley story in the sense yeah. that it's like, OK, you know, the culture of the employees there tends to be quite progressive. It's creating all of these skirmishes. If there happens quite to be a founder. We'll see. We'll see how many people show up to this protest. Right. But I don't know. How, how serious a protest is this? And, and what is their specific beef with? I'm going to be surprised if it's if it's that serious, because, look, I mean, Safra Katz, who, whose title is CEO at Oracle, she was on President Trump's transition team. I mean, I don't know if anybody missed that, but this is no huge surprise that this is where Oracle Was there any outrage about be. that at uh, that time? No. I mean, Oracle's been consistent. This is not Salesforce. This is not a Mark Benioff brand where he's out to save the world and rescue puppies, right? This is Larry Ellison. He doesn't rescue puppies, right? He, he, he drives buys, them. No. He, buy, he buys Hawaiian <laughs> Islands. I'm not, saying, yeah. I'm not saying that, but he buys Hawaiian Islands. Right. Right? But this right. is like the prototype for Tony Stark in the Marvel yeah, it's It's one thing to be an, an amoral executive. In other words, you don't take a moral stance on something that's political. It's another thing, I think, for a company that as a policy says we don't pick a political candidate, we don't, mm-hmm. we don't endorse specific candidates. And also, as a leader, I think you just want to stay apolitical so that you don't alienate, in this day and age, one part of your workforce. So I think holding a fundraiser... I don't think it's necessary, and I think it does cause for anybody, bad press. For, you think no corporate executive should be holding a fundraiser? Well, I think Soul Cycle too, same kind of backlash. Uh, I just deal. think you can quietly lobby in a way that's effective, that delivers the interests of the company, which is, after all, what he's all about, without getting everyone or a, cer- a certain part of the company upset at you and in a certain part of the company who cheers you for the support of that. I just think it's a lightning rod whenever you go and support and raise money for a specific party or candidate. Now, look, he you raised money it. for Bill Clinton. Yeah, he raised money rod. for Democrats, so he's never been afraid of this. Um, but, but I just think it, it's just you can do without, you can be as effective through lobbying. You could, but you said lightning rod. That's Larry Ellison. Is anybody yeah. saying, I never expected right. this? How right. could he do yeah. something so you know, bold? He's doing what's best for Oracle. Right. I'm shocked, yeah. right? 
And, and, and that's what you think it is? He just views this as almost a, a purely, like, look, I hold this fundraiser. It's going to benefit the company, you know. Look how Oracle sues. Look how yeah. Oracle lobbies. Look how Oracle does M&A. Oracle's right. about Oracle. Yeah. Mm-hmm. All right. And they've got a case in front of the DOD right now, which couldn't hurt. That, no, that's an excellent point. Well, well put. Uh, and we talked about Apple a moment ago, so let's go to this one. The company is reportedly considering letting users choose default iPhone programs that belong to a third party or not necessarily one of Apple's, I think, 38 pre-installed apps. Um, as somebody who recently converted to Microsoft Outlook's app, which I never thought I would do because there's of the, an app. Yes, <laughs> yeah. and it is wonderful, and I, no I love it. Yes, as opposed to the default because they updated iOS and then the. The trash button is where the reply button used to be, John. It was driving me crazy. <laughs> I kept deleting stuff I was trying to answer. So that's why you never read all my emails. Exactly. They were going in the trash. I accidentally yeah, deleted okay, them, Okay, now I understand. So, so a new tech forward Kelly Evans. You know, I'm <laughs> on TikTok. Uh, what, what is the significance of this, really? Because for them, it, it would be a big deal to, to let anyone kind of have those inroads. It would be hugely significant because uh, a lot of the people in Apple's ecosystem have complained that there's a toll for certain things and then just certain areas, certain features you can't access. So uh, Siri integration is one of those things. Uh, Apple tends to tie in its own services and apps very tightly to Siri. Uh, If you ask for a song to play, it hasn't been as easy to get that to to play from Spotify, uh, for example. Sonos has been walled off to some extent, though now that's getting more and more open. So if Apple starts seeing its services the way it looked at the iPod long ago as an entity unto itself that should... Um, allow access to all kinds of things. It'll be interesting to see what business model builds around that. They've taken some steps in that direction lately with building a kind of Apple's TV app into third-party TVs, including Samsung. If they took it in this direction, it would be a very big deal um, and, and a shift in trajectory for Apple and have a huge impact on the ecosystem. Do you think it's because they're trying to avoid antitrust concerns down the road or, or because there's they a, think it's good There's an investigation now, right? So no coincidence. Do you think that blunts the efforts to... Because that's how they got Microsoft they, are they heading the off? Are they heading off the existing investigation, and will it help? I don't know that I think the antitrust argument against Apple is that strong. Right, Because all kinds of big stores have their own brands that they sell in a store mm-hmm. that they give anchor, you know, but preferential. But remember the Microsoft right. precedent. Exactly. I mean, they, they ultimately got Microsoft over bundling Internet Explorer exactly. with Windows, which yeah. doesn't seem like that big of a deal, but was enough to do well, them in, practically. That, that was a bit different because it was a tying issue where it automatically went to certain things. And Windows had dominant market, uh, market share. Apple doesn't have dominant market share in anything except operating systems on their own devices, which are a fraction of the total market. So unless you start defining Apple itself as its own market, even though it has minority share and is kind of a luxury niche, I mean, I'm not a lawyer, but I don't get it yet. <laughs> but you did stay at a Holiday Inn Express. I did stay at a Holiday Inn Express. <laughs> uh, we'll leave it there, and we thank you all very much. Robert, Kate, and John, that does it for Rapid Fire today. Coming up, political ads dominated social media in 2016, but this year their ads are moving on to Hulu and other streaming platforms. There's a big problem with this trend. No transparency laws. We'll look at the potential problems it could bring. Plus, a once red-hot IPO is being circled by short sellers as it gets ready to report tonight. We've got the details. Stay with us.
Welcome back to The Exchange. A new piece in The Washington Post highlights how streaming platforms like Roku and Hulu are getting flooded with political ads. A lack of transparency when it comes to traditional media is leaving regulators concerned that voters could be subject to the same kind of media manipulation there that dominated the 2016 election. For more, let me bring in the author of this piece, Tony Rahm, a senior tech policy reporter at The Washington Post. Tony, as we found, there are people furious about how many political ads there are on Hulu. What makes them different from ads that appear elsewhere? Right. The ads might look exactly the same as the sort of thing that you're used to seeing on your traditional broadcast television networks. But what makes streaming such a critical new battleground for a lot of these political campaigns is the new ability to target some of these ads based on browsing behavior or one's political affiliation and so forth. And so we're beginning to see a lot of these campaigns embracing sites and services like Hulu and Roku. But as those dollars have flooded those platforms, we haven't seen any sort of change to federal law that would bring more more transparency to some of the ads that appear there. So what could we be talking about in terms of uh, confusion, uh, shall we say, for the broader public? And in what way would you draw analogies between what's happening here and what happened in 2016? Right. So it's important to know where we start exactly in the United States. So if you're running an ad on a local ABC or NBC or Fox station, you generally have to file information to the station and then they put some of that data online. It's called the political file. It's long time regulation here in the United States. That same thing doesn't apply to streaming. And I think the stakes of it are evident if you look at other platforms where political folks are advertising. So let's take Facebook, for example. You can go onto Facebook right now and you can generally see how much money a particular campaign or organization is spending and the people that they targeted with that ad. But even though those same targeting tools are being used on streaming media sites like Hulu, we're not getting the same level of transparency. So you can't see, for example, if a politician is lying to people at scale or narrowly targeting some of those lies and falsehoods at particular populations. So a couple of things could happen. I mean, users of these services could say, you know, listen, I we need to make sure we we aren't micro-targeted in a way that we're not aware of or not comfortable with. The other piece of this, though, as well, I guess, is that you have a transparency factor that has led some to say Facebook shouldn't accept any political ads, for instance. I mean, should these streaming services follow the steps that I think Twitter and some of the others have taken by saying, you know, we're not going to take these? Well, there's certainly a lot of pressure on Capitol Hill for these streaming sites to do something. And that something is generally putting out archives or putting out repositories where people can look at the full slate of ads that have been purchased on the platform and the reason why those ads had been targeted in the first place. But we're not seeing companies like Hulu and Roku and Sling TV put forward some of those archives, and the law doesn't require them to do it anyway. Now, when talking to a lot of experts, one of the things that they say is that these ads are much different than the kinds of things that you're used to seeing on Facebook or on Google. The targeting just isn't fully there just yet with respect to streaming, but it's slowly getting there. We're beginning to see these video ads deployed in the same ways that, you know, we're used to seeing traditional ads on Facebook. And so that concern around what some people would call micro-targeting is why you're seeing such a push for more transparency right now. All right, Tony, we appreciate it. Again, there's more in the Washington Post. Uh, Tony Rahm talking about political ads on streaming services. Thank you, sir. Thanks. Up next, you've heard of NIMBY, but do you know about YIMBY? It's the Yes in My Backyard movement. It's growing in popularity as more people get priced out of the housing market. We'll dive into that next.
California has a huge housing problem. The McKinsey Global Institute estimates the state would have to build three and a half million more houses by 2025 just to close that gap. And as goes California, so goes the nation. My next guest dives into the drama playing out in the Bay Area and what that means for the broader country and his new book, Golden Gates, Fighting for Housing in America. With me now is the author, Connor Doherty. He's an economics reporter at The New York Times and a longtime friend. Yes. We go way back uh, to those days in the Wall Street Journal. Connor, welcome. Thank and you, congratulations Kelly. on the book. I loved it. I read it. It was awesome. And it really opened my eyes. And everyone around here knows because I've been talking about it nonstop. It really opened my eyes to this whole Yimby thing. And I know that's not what you're saying the book is primarily about. But talk to us about where this kind of move by especially younger people who to be pro-development is coming from and, and how big you think it's going to get. Well, so there's all sorts of people around the country who can't afford housing. And that is going higher and higher up the income ladder. So there's all sorts of young people, millennial renters, people who work at Facebook, Google, whatever, who can't afford their rent. And they're mobilizing. And it's really fascinating to me because as I was uh, doing the research for the book, I found that people have been talking about this problem. Larry Katz, if you recall, the uh, old Harvard professor used to call when you were at the Wall Street Journal, when he (laughs) was a college student, he was writing about this problem in the 80s, early 80s. And... They all said along the way, well, you could never really make a, a, a constituency out of this hmm. because there's no one to fight for housing that doesn't exist yet. Yes. And these yes. people are trying to do it. And it's kind of a weird conundrum if you think about it, but also something that's really needed. And you had this great anecdote in the book that centers around a young woman who showed up to kind of a, your typical city council meeting to fight for a, a building when normally people show up to kind of say, not in my backyard, and, and that kind of crystallized this whole movement. So it's becoming more popular. You can see it in different parts of the country. You can look at Minneapolis, which has been really progressive, I guess you would say, in the way it's now letting people build multifamily or multi-structure dwellings in single-family neighborhoods. Do you think that the fabric of communities in this country is likely to change as a result of this, or is this just unique to the Bay Area and some of California's wackiness, so to speak? I do not think that the single-family home neighborhood is going to be a relic of the past, but I think that it will be more rare. Uh, Minneapolis, as you noted, uh, became the first major city in America to get rid, to essentially get rid of single-family-only zoning. And they're going to allow people to build three, it's not super intense, it's not five-story buildings, Mm -hmm. but it's you could build three units on any lot, hmm. right? Uh, but if you look at all the Democratic presidential candidates, Bernie Sanders, Elizabeth Warren, Amy Klobuchar, who's you know, from Minnesota, so she's taking from that plan, uh, they all have some sort of zoning component in their plan. Now, whether or not any of those are ever going to really happen, who knows? But it's becoming a statement of purpose that this is not sacrosanct anymore, and that alone is a major change from just two or three years ago. I feel like you kind of got to open the conversation before anything really right. happens. Interestingly, housing is still pretty much regulated on a local level. I don't know if there's that much you could do kind of in the office of the White House, uh, so to speak, to change this overnight. I don't know if something like that is coming. But I wonder, too, how much of this in California is because of, well, well, and to be fair, rent control that Bernie Sanders has talked about uh, taking nationwide and doing something like that. And also, and this is a little esoteric, but not to Californians, Prop 13. I mean, the way that that sort of traps or keeps people in housing and doesn't really pave the way for the next generation of homeowners seems to contribute a lot to this. Well, as a major Prop 13 beneficiary, (laughs) I have mixed feelings about it. But no, I think actually, you know what the real hidden thing about Prop 13 is, isn't so much that it traps people in it, although it does that too. It's that it makes cities hate new housing because they, they don't get higher taxes from it. Interesting. Uh, so, um, they, 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 so you look at Palo Alto. 
Palo Alto is where a lot of tech companies are based. They have four jobs per every housing unit, which is way more than even, like, say, Manhattan. Uh, but they are financially incented to do that because the commercial property returns a lot more than the residential property, which is not the case in New Jersey, where I'm sure you pay high property taxes. Yep. And so what we're seeing is sort of this skewed incentives that encourages places like the Silicon Valley to have way, way, way more jobs than housing units. What do you get? You get three-hour commutes. You get people getting priced out of their homes. You get right. teachers who are, you know, sleeping in their cars. Uh, you know. No, and you've documented all of this. Yeah. So I guess the, the, the point here is while California maybe has policies that could contribute to making it worse and then they're trying to fix that with policy, what about for the rest of the country? What happens if something like rent control goes, goes national because the idea is, hey, you know, this is somebody else's fault and so this is a mechanism that will fix the problem and make my rents much lower and then I, as somebody who's trapped out of single-family housing, have a more affordable lifestyle? Well, I think there's gonna, we're going to need a mix of policy solutions. As we know, uh, there's not enough housing and people don't make enough money. How you sort of, you know, the mix of the solu- the mix of how you're going to, it's going to be some version of build more housing and subsidize housing for people who can't afford it. That's what's going to, that's what needs to happen. Such a sea change. But, yes. But I think also that um, you're, you're, you're seeing this show up in other cities. I mean, like you said, Minneapolis, Boston, Portland. I mean, any place that isn't like declining has this problem because... As you know, I mean, tech jobs, finance jobs, they all right. kind of agglomerate in these places. But who, when we were covering the housing crisis and the overbuilding and the ghost community, who would have ever thought just 10 years later here we'd be talking about what a shortage we have? Well, you know, you could kind of actually see it in certain cities at that time, but it was hard to talk about. Absolutely. And now uh, you've done a great book on it. Connor, thanks for joining me. It's Thank great you. to see you again. Good luck with it. Connor Doherty from The New York Times. The book is Golden Gate. And shares of Dropbox are down 35% since its IPO just two years ago. There's increased cloud competition from big tech, including Google and Microsoft. Can the company get back on track? That's next. Shares of Dropbox are down more than 27% over the past year, languishing well below the 2018 IPO price. And the short sellers are taking notice. Deirdre Bosa has more. Deirdre? Hey, Kelly. Well, a few things getting the wrong kind of attention from Spruce Point Capital, from CEO Drew Houston joining Facebook's board, which they call a distraction, to its new headquarters, which they call poorly timed and expensive, to its HelloSign acquisition that Spruce Point says still doesn't make Dropbox competitive and enterprise. Now, Dropbox declined to comment, but that last point, throwing cold water on the company's enterprise progress, that may hurt the most because since its 2018 IPO, Dropbox has been trying to prove to investors that it can turn its large consumer following into paying enterprise customers, coming to the platform not just for cloud storage, but for collaboration tools. Now, competition, of course, is extremely stiff across this landscape and puts Dropbox up against the biggest, best capitalized names in tech like Microsoft and Google. Kelly? And the company, Deirdre, they get a sense they might be pulling out anything else here? That they might be, I'm sorry? Pulling out anything else to try to turn things around. Right. Well, they actually already have, Kelly. For much of last year, they talked about this desktop app launch. And I think investors are really going to want to see some momentum behind that. They've signed partnerships with some of the hottest names in enterprise tech, like Zoom and Slack, recent really hot IPOs. And that still um, hasn't really shown that they're able to convert these customers at a greater rate. All right. We'll see what happens this afternoon. Deirdre, thank you. Deirdre Bosa out west. That does it for The Exchange. Thanks for tuning in. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place.
People today can spend half their lives over 50. So it's good to be financially ready for what's important to you as you get older, like a family vacation. Or starting your dream business. Welcome to Connie's Coffee. How may I help you? AARP's trusted financial tools can help you plan for whatever your future holds. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Start planning today at aarp.org slash money tools. 